Chapter 9 Angels Let us the cherubim mystically representing, and unto the life-giving trinity, the thrice-holy chant intoning, all cares terrestrial now lay aside, that we may raise on high the king of all, like conqueror on shield and spears, by the angelic hosts invisibly upborne. Alleluia! The Cherubimic Hymn The song quoted on the opposite page is a hymn of the Eastern Churches, sung at the beginning of the Communion Liturgy. It asserts that believers in the New Covenant are like the angels who guard the throne of God. When Adam rebelled and was cast from Eden, cherubic guardians were appointed in his place. But with the coming of the Son of Man, the keys of the kingdom are returned to human guardians. We have seen that heaven is a model for the earth. Since angels are the original host of heaven, it is reasonable to infer that angels are, in some senses, models for humanity. To help us come to grips with this, it is useful to reflect on the creation and purpose of angels. The Heavenly Host When were angels created? Because angels are associated with stars throughout the Bible, Job 38.7, Isaiah 14.13, Revelation 12.4, it might seem that angels were created on the fourth day, along with the stars. In the New Covenant, however, men are also associated with stars, Philippians 2.15, Revelation 1.20. That the stars are men here is proved by the fact that the same right hand that upholds the stars also upholds the man John, Revelations 1.16 and 17. Men were created the sixth day, not the same day as stars. Thus, the fact that angels are associated with stars does not serve to indicate which day they were created. It is most likely that they were created in Genesis 1.1, right along with the heavens and earth in one act. This is indicated by what God says to Job in Job 38.4-8. In verse 4, God refers to the actual creation of the earth itself. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? It goes on in verse 5 and 6 to refer to the work of six days, the work of shaping and structuring. Who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Finally, referring to the angels, God says, Or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Verses 6b and 7. The cornerstone is the first part of the foundation so that by returning to the cornerstone at the end of his list, God returns to the initial act of creating the earth. The angels were present to praise at that moment. From this we can reasonably guess, without being dogmatic about it obviously, that God created heaven and the angels instantly, and then created the primordial earth. Thus Genesis 1-1 says, heaven and earth, not vice versa, indicating not only that heaven is a model for the earth, but that it was made first. Angels were created a host, but not a race. Angels do not marry, and new angels do not emerge as time goes along. All the angels were created mature at one instant of time. Thus, angels did not emerge from formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. It is quite otherwise with man. Being of the earth, earthy, 1 Corinthians 15.47, man is built up over time. The womb is empty until it is filled with a new man. During the nine months of pregnancy, the new man is in darkness and is moving from relative formlessness to form, as Psalm 139 says. Thou didst form mine inward parts. 
thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. My bones were not hidden from thee when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen mine unformed substance. Verses 13 through 16. While the Hebrew words used in Psalm 139 are not the same as those used in Genesis 1-2, the general idea is the same. Yet it is the destiny of this race of men to mature into a holy host. Thus the armies of God are spoken of as his host, and enlistment into that host at the age of twenty, numbers one, is an indication that a certain stage of maturity has been reached. Moreover, the fact that men are to mature from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, becoming even more glorious in time, while the angels were created glorious at the outset, again indicates that the angelic host forms a picture of the goal of human maturation, from fetal formlessness to angelic glory. Thus, Jesus affirms that men, in their transfigured glory, are like the angels in heaven, and neither marry nor are given in marriage. Matthew 22.30 Note that men are not said to become angels, contrary to popular mystical presentations such as the film It's a Wonderful Life. Rather, men become like the angels. In one sense, maturation in glory can never end, either for angels or for men since there are always new depths and heights to God for us to appreciate and reflect. In another sense, however, there is a point at which maturity is reached, and in that sense angels serve as models for men. Thus, the original creation purpose of the earth was to grow into heaven-likeness, and for man was to grow into angel-likeness. This natural process of growth and development, built into the old creation, was forever wrecked by the rebellion of man. As a result, the process of maturation took the world downhill in the direction of wilderness degeneration, Genesis 4-6, through and man into the likeness of beasts and creeping things, Romans 1-23, Psalm 135-18, and 49-12. In the new creation, inaugurated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world and humanity are restored to their original program. The developmental processes of the old creation are re-established in the Spirit on the basis of the heaven attainment of Christ. Cosmic Controllers Angels run the world for God. This is one of the most difficult aspects of the biblical worldview for modern men to understand, and so we should take a closer look at it. The modern view of the world is that the cosmos is run by natural forces, sometimes called natural laws. The expression natural law is a holdover from earlier, more Christian times. The notion of a law requires a personal lawgiver, and also a personal agent to obey the law. What modern people mean by natural law is better termed natural forces. At this point, most modern people are deists. They believe that God created the universe, billions of years ago, winding it up like a clock, and then leaving it to run itself. Occasionally, God interferes in their natural processes, and they call this a supernatural event, or a miracle. This is not the biblical view. Christianity teaches that God is intimately active in running his universe all the time. He is not an absentee landlord. There are no impersonal natural forces at work in the cosmos. Vavink writes that, After the creation of the world, God did not leave the world to itself, looking down upon it from afar. The living God is not to be pushed to one side or into the background after the creation issues from his hand. From the biblical perspective, 
A miracle occurs when God does something differently from the way he usually does it. As Auguste Le Cerf has written, The constant relations which we call natural laws are simply divine habits, or, better, the habitual order which God imposes on nature. It is these habits, or this habitual process, which constitute the object of the natural and physical sciences. The miracle, in its form, is nothing but a deviation from the habitual course of natural phenomena provoked by the intervention of a new factor, an extraordinary volition of God. Poitras goes straight to the heart of the matter. The Bible shows us a personalistic world, not impersonal law. What we call scientific law is an approximate human description of just how faithfully and consistently God acts in ruling the world by speaking. There is no mathematical, physical, or theoretical cosmic machinery behind what we see and know, holding everything in place. Rather, God rules, and rules consistently. A miracle, then, is not a violation of a law of nature, and not even something alongside laws of nature, but is the operation of the only law that there is, the Word of God. What God says is the law. See Psalm 33, 6. The Bible tells us that God actively works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. In a particular way concerning the Church, it can be said that there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all, 1 Corinthians 12.6. It is true of all men, however, that in Him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17.28. The theological doctrine that God works along with all things is known as the doctrine of divine concurrence. It means, according to Louis Burkhoff, 1. That the powers of nature do not work by themselves, that is, simply by their own inherent power, but that God is immediately operative in every act of the creature. This must be maintained in opposition to the deistic position. 2. That second causes are real, and not to be regarded simply as the operative power of God. It is only on condition that second causes are real, that we can properly speak of a concurrence or cooperation of the first cause with secondary causes. This should be stressed over against the pantheistic idea that God is the only agent working in the world. Thus, it is God who makes it rain and snow, Psalm 104.13, and 16. God who causes grass to grow, Psalm 104.14 and 147.8. God usually does things the same way. And this enables us to go about our business in the world with confidence that the gravitational constant, for instance, will not change. The gravitational constant and Coriolis force and other forces that are described by natural science are actually regularities that God has imposed upon himself and his angelic agents. The covenant regularities of our present world were set up after the flood, according to God's promise in Genesis 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. This poetic statement sums up the natural world, and says that as regards nature, God will not change the fundamental way he does things until the end of the world. From a Christian standpoint, the study of the laws of nature is a study of the terms of the Noahic covenant. Let me give an illustration that has been helpful to me in thinking about this. According to Joshua 5.12, God gave manna to Israel for forty years in the wilderness. This manna was found on the ground every morning except the Sabbath. There was twice as much on Friday morning. It rotted if it was kept overnight, except Friday night. See Exodus 16. 
Also, Deuteronomy 29.5 says that during the forty years in the wilderness, their clothes and shoes did not wear out. Now, imagine a child growing up in this situation. Let us assume that this child was born while Israel was encamped at Sinai. For nearly forty years, these are the only conditions he has ever known. If this man were a scientist, he might come up with some scientific natural laws. For instance, he might believe that it is a law of nature that while some fabrics wear out, fabrics worn by human beings do not. While some leather objects wear out, shoes worn by human beings do not. Perhaps this is because human beings have a restraining aura around themselves that prevents wear. He might also formulate a natural law that says that the gravitational and tidal forces of the sun and moon prevent the fall of manna every seven days, while providing a doubling of manna the day before. Concentrations of cosmic rays cause the quality of the manna provided on the day before the cessation to be different, more concentrated, so that it lasts twice as long without rotting. It is easy for us to see that these explanations would not be valid. Our present world order, however, is the same. The laws that govern natural processes are actually just God's current ways of doing things. This brings us to the involvement of angels in running the natural world. It is in the area of weather that the Bible shows angels running the world. The passages that show this are in Psalm 104 and the book of Hebrews. Speaking of God, the psalmist says, He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the wind his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. Psalm 104, 3-4 The author of Hebrews explains that these are references to angels. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire? Hebrews 1, 7 This means that at least sometimes angels are involved in running the weather, and carries with it an implication that angels run other things in the world also. God, of course, is concurrently running the world, but angels are also involved, at least sometimes. Thus, for instance, if you pull the watch off your arm and drop it into your lap, what causes it to fall? And to fall at a rate we can describe by a gravitational constant? Well, first of all, the eternally active God caused it to go down at that rate, according to his provisions in the Noahic Covenant. Second, it is likely that gravity angels either pulled or pushed it down at that rate. We need to face the fact that this way of thinking seems primitive or childish to us, but that is only because of the secular propaganda we have absorbed. God's word is a friendly world, run by him personally and by his angels. Investigations of natural processes are really investigations of how God's stewards run his house. Before the rise of modern secularism, Christian theologians spoke more freely about this kind of thing. Let me just call attention to some of John Calvin's remarks on the prophecy of Ezekiel. Calvin takes note of the fact that the angelic cherubim who drive God's cloud chariot have four faces, the faces of man, eagle, ox, and lion. Calvin does not hesitate to say that, by these heads all living creatures are represented to us. For although trees, and the sea, and rivers, and herbs, and the air, and stars, and sun are parts of the universe, yet in living beings there is more nearer approach to God, and some clearer display of his energy. For there is motion in a man, in an ox, in an eagle, and in a lion. 
these animals comprehend within themselves all parts of the universe by that figure of speech by which a part represents the whole. Meanwhile, since angels are living creatures, we must observe in what sense God attributes to angels themselves the head of a lion, an eagle, and a man. For this seems but little in accordance with their nature. But he could not better express the inseparable connection which exists in the motion of angels and all creatures. We have said that angels are not called the powers of God in vain. Now, when a lion either roars or exercises its strength, it seems to move by its own strength, so also it may be said of other animals. But God here says that the living creatures are in some sense part of the angels, though not of the same substance. For this is not to be understood of the similarity of nature, but of effect. We are to understand, therefore, that while men move about and discharge their duties, they apply themselves in different directions to the objects of their pursuit, and so also do wild beasts. Yet there are angelic motions underneath, so that neither man nor animals move themselves, but their whole vigor depends on a secret inspiration. As the Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, so Calvin seems to have felt that life and energy were communicated to men and animals by the angelic agents of the Spirit. Calvin's interpretation of Ezekiel 1 may not be correct at this particular point, but his overall worldview is in accord with the Bibles. Angels and Men Now that we have a fuller understanding of the service of angels, we can see once again how they model life for humanity. We are to do God's will on earth as it is done in heaven, to act in this world as heavenly people. The angels, perfect servants of God, are thus models for us. There are three particular things the Bible shows angels doing as models for us. First, the Bible shows angels praising God, ascribing holiness to Him around His throne. The seraphim of Isaiah 6 sing, Holy, holy, holy to Him, as do the cherubim in Revelation 4. When the cherubim start up this chant, the twenty-four angels of the second rank take it up and also worship God, Revelation 4, 8-11. In Revelation 4, humanity is absent, still excluded from heaven. In Revelation 5, however, we watch the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, ascend to the throne next to His Father. Now at last, the redeemed multitude also can join the heavenly choir. The cherubim and the twenty-four chief angels begin a new song, Revelation 5, 8-10, which is taken up by the whole angelic host, Revelation 5, 11-12, and finally, by humanity and all creation, Revelation 5, 13-14. Second, these praises constitute the hymnic throne of God. The cherubim form his throne in the tabernacle, as he sits on their outstretched wings with his feet on the ark, the footstool. 1 Samuel 4 4, 2 Samuel 6 2, 2 Kings 19 15, Isaiah 36 16, Psalm 82 and 99 1. When this throne becomes his chariot, we find again that he is seated above the wings of the cherubim, 1 Chronicles 28 18 and Ezekiel 1 4 28. Just so, God is enthroned on the praises of Israel, Psalm 22 3 and 148 13. And his throne was carried on the shoulders of the Levites, Numbers 4, 15, 7, 9, 2 Samuel 6, 3 through 7, and 13. God's hosts thus labor for him as his servants. By holding him up, they proclaim him king. 
Finally, the cherubim guard the heavenly throne of God and kill those who defile his holiness. Originally, man was given this task on earth, Genesis 2.15, but Adam allowed the serpent to take possession of his heart and was defiled. Thus, the cherubim also guarded the portal of the earthly throne, Genesis 2.24, Leviticus 10.1-2, and 2 Chronicles 26.19. When the tabernacle was set up, a curtain of the cherubim separated the throne from the rest of the tent, Exodus 26.31. The outer areas, however, were guarded by armed Levites, who were to keep away sinful encroachers on pain of death, Numbers 18.3. With the coming of the new covenant, the keys of the kingdom were returned to humanity, since a son of man had become guardian of Eden once more, Matthew 16.19 and Acts 2.3 and 5.1-11. Conclusion. The angelic host models the church. As angels bear the throne exalted, so the church in her preaching and life proclaims and exalts her king. As angels guard the throne, so the church, through her discipline, guards God's holiness. As angels worship at the throne, so the church worships her Lord in sacrament and liturgy. And beyond this, angels also model for us our work in the world. As angels delight to work and run God's world for him, so should we, for in his service is perfect freedom.